Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. Um, today we're very kindly joined by Alan Green. Alan, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Hello, John. Good to be back and welcome back from your break. Yes, lovely. Good good to uh, to be back. And um, as things appear, I think I'll probably just fit that in in time, given the changes that we saw yesterday from Boris Johnson. And that's probably something that we're going to uh, to start off with today, Alan. So we, we had, have seen quite a significant amount of downside in markets uh, earlier on uh, this week. Obviously, a very sharp drop on Monday in the FTSE 100. But with that announcement, we have seen a sharp rally today. How much do you think, when looking at this move, it's uh, sort of um, sort of buy the rumour, um, sell the fact type setup in terms of there could be uh, uh, further measures coming in and people sort of selling in anticipation of that. Then when we do see the announcement, we we see that uh, that removal um, of uh, the anticipation there and obviously a, a rally back in the FTSE 100? Or do you think this is something that's very much um, investors um, looking at equities at this point in time and just thinking, well, we, we, we've had a second wave before and there's some value here and, and we've seen a similar setup and we might see a bit more volatility in the markets, but we just want to get in at these prices and just ride it out. What, where do you sort of... See that um, sort of playing out. Is it a short term move, or do you think people are in here for the longer term? I think they're in here for the longer term, Jonathan. And and the reason you've just outlined the reasons very clearly there. Uh, I mean, firstly, we're seeing a resurgence in technology stocks, uh, both uh, in the US, of course, uh, and the Nasdaq, and and here um, because, of course, stocks like Zoom and Apple and others. Are um, are going to benefit from from a lockdown, and I think we also have the prospect of an extended lockdown too. We're looking at six months, and I think uh, yesterday was just the initial initial shot, if you like, from the from the government. Um, and if those numbers, if the R number continues to rise, and we see infections continue to spread, then we're going to see more drastic measures, possibly leading back to to a full lockdown. Um, and that's going to be extended through the winter. So, so that raises the prospect of of a number of uh, a, a number of issues, which have of course driven the FTSE. So, the pounds fallen for starters. All the dollar earners have uh, rocketed, and the FTSE uh, the, the, the constituents of the FTSE hundred are uh, primarily dollar earners, such as Rio Tinto, such as uh, 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 Shell, and and. Um, and, and and other sort of uh, Vodafone and other 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 huge huge companies. So so these companies are are benefiting in that regard. Um, secondly, of course, we have uh, we, we do have the the uh, the prospect of um, of uh, a, a second boom in 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 some COVID stocks. So um, I think there's a there's a lot a lot of buying in in anticipation of that, but also. If we look at where the FTSE fell to at the peak of the lockdown back in March, um, we, we we got pretty close to that. So I think uh, I think people are seeing value in the markets at this level, um, and the opportunity to pick up um, some major stocks at knockdown prices um, that, of course, pay a dividend. Um, there's also the, the the other factor, which is the the the, the possibility of further government intervention. Um, We've seen, of course, in Germany and Ireland and other places, the furlough schemes extended through to April next year. Um, at the moment, uh, the furlough schemes are set to end in October. But um, I firmly believe that given the current scenario, um, the Chancellor will either extend the furlough scheme in the UK to next year or he may well introduce some alternative scheme that uh, will do a similar job. Either way, I think um, I think uh, there are a lot of factors in place to drive the FTSE higher. But as you rightly say, it's very much a buy the rumour, sell the news market because once the once the actions are confirmed and the and uh, also uh, the extent of the damage to the UK economy is confirmed, then we may well see a retracement back to these to these to these sort to these sort of levels. I mean, just looking specifically at the moves today, we're looking at the House Builders 
in uh, um, Barrett Developments and uh, Taylor Wimpy um, up at around so sort of five six percent. Rolls yeah. Royce very heavily beaten up. They're up about six uh, percent. As are JD Sports and uh, um, IAG um, up five percent. How much do you think the moves today could be a bit of a dead cap bounce to some extent, given that we saw a very strong rally on Wall Street overnight, dri- driven by the tech stocks, you know, your Apples and your Amazons, um, so looking at some of the Zooms that you mentioned there. And we followed that over into the European session. Is this just the case that we're seeing you know, a bit of a tick up in US equities and, and we're just jumping on the tailcoats of it? And it could be a very short term um, sort of dead cap bounce in the market before we see a bit more downside as realisation comes in. There could be uh, a deteriorating economic picture going into uh, into the winter. Well, there is that, but it, it's, we've had some interesting statements uh, that have been quite telling from um, companies and organisations uh, engaged in the construction and house building sector over the past few weeks. Um, and of course, we're seeing the house builders up today. Certainly, when Travis Perkins uh, reported the other week, they um, they saw a resilient house building and home improvement market going forward. Um, and I'll come on to Kingfisher shortly and talk about their uh, about their their results yesterday. But um, indeed, I think uh, we're seeing a pretty buoyant market for that sector. And of course, um, yeah, the, the pubs, the restaurants, the clubs, um, entertainment venues are missing out. But the irony is that uh, that cash that isn't being spent in the pubs and uh, going going on holiday or going to sit the cinema is now being spent at home. So um, so the so so certainly the 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 outlook for that sector I think is pretty buoyant. Whether it'll be enough to offset the the falls and the damage done into other sectors remains to be seen. But um, but certainly um, I think we've got good value around this level. The the markets will continue. The FTSE trading in the range between uh, just below where it is now up to six thousand three hundred. Um, so I, I expect it to remain certainly trading within that range. So let, let you, you touched on Kingfisher. Let's, let's pay some attention to them because this very much falls into the category of a uh, COVID stock. Uh, benefited from people staying at home, um, people on furlough being paid, very little else to do. So they're, they're looking at the, the home improvement side of things whilst they're spending an increased amount of time in their home. Of course, there's the working from home side of things as well. How much... When you're looking at these figures, when you're sort of looking at light-to-light figures, which are only down slightly if you're looking uh, on a half year from a year before, how much, when you're, you're sort of looking at those, is the, the rally that we've seen in shares priced in um, from that relatively flat, uh, that flat set of data there, is that really just down to Kingfisher beating the expectations of the, the, the analysts? Or is this expectation that we're going to see further growth and an increase in sales in Kingfisher going forward? Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence supporting um, a strong ongoing construction sector um, and and house building sector. Um, I mean, for instance, my my son works in the industry and uh, his company, he he manages... um, uh, various building sites around the south of England, and, and they are booked up at least a year ahead. They have work every day for at least a year ahead, and we're hearing this story more and more. So, so certainly, I think uh, I think uh, the sector has legs. I think there is a lot to support it. But if we look at the numbers from Kingfisher, I mean, for sure, the um, like for like sales were down to just under six billion. Um, but adjusted pre-tax grew and it beat analysts expect, analysts were expecting about 360 million in adjusted pre-tax and uh, they came in with 415 million. Um, that was actually boosted largely by a, 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 a massive 164% increase in online sales. Um, and of course, uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, I was certainly queuing at B&Q once they reopened. Um, but, uh, you know, B&Q have done a, done a roaring trade since reopening their stores. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, the picture 
was also reflected in France. Um, uh, Castor Armour and Brico Depot, which are owned by Kingfisher in France, um, produced very similar numbers. So um, they're, they're, certainly they, they, they've benefited from the surge in spending on homes, uh, people using their entertainment and, and, uh, and leisure monies to, uh, to invest into, in, into home improvement. But looking forward, um, you know, the, the, the board are pretty confident of, that the market's going to continue to grow. Um, they, they've said the moment, momentum has continued into quarter three. Um, UK sales up nearly 19%, uh, sales in France up 17%. So there, there are clear signals there that um, the, the trend is is continuing um, to the point where the CEO Thierry Garnier said um, they are going to experiment with new store formats, including um, a joint venture with uh, Asda to put mini B&Q mini, uh, 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 mini stores into supermarkets. So... Um, it's a very, very sort of a very sort of bullish outlook from that point, uh, that, from that point of view, and um, that was also just uh, from the for the technical analysts out there. The chart of Kingfisher makes very interesting reading. Uh, there was what's called a, a golden cross uh, delivered uh, back in back at the end of June, where the fifty and golden cross is formed where a a a a a, a, a fifty day the fifty day moving average punches through the benchmark 200-day moving average. Um, and we saw that back in June, and the, and the 50 days continues to rise. And indeed, the shares have traded above that really up until they, up until the announcements where they, they came back. So, so certainly the, uh, the, all the indications are going forward that, um, that the, the, the shares will, will, will continue to rise. Um, so, and I think, I think a lockdown actually plays right into the hands of this company too. So the uh, the predictions are that uh, there's going to be, of course, we're, we're going back into partial lockdown. I think it's going to get worse. I, I don't think they can arrest the the uh, uh, the um, infection rate um, with the actions they've taken. So I think more drastic uh, uh, methods will be employed and um, that will involve us staying home again. So the bedroom that perhaps we didn't decorate in the, the lockdown in the spring this year will now be decorated uh, um, but certainly um, uh, from Kingfisher's standpoint the performance was picked up and the and the, if, in, indeed the um, the uh, um, the guidance beating performance by uh, the company was picked up by Atlantic capital markets and they expect the shares to continue to push higher and they've got a a near-term target over the next uh, month and a half of 317p, which was last hit back in back in in 2018. So I'm I'm just looking at these shares now, Alan. Now, as an investor, I'd be I'd be looking at these, and I'd be looking at the company market cap um, 6.2 million in the first half. We had um, profit of sorry 6.2 billion. I was going to say billion, yeah. <laughs> billion in the in the first half we had profit of 317 uh, million so if we were uh, very crudely to then double that uh, for the full year we'd be looking at 600 million roughly 10 times earnings yeah how much is there a risk that we've seen the summer we've seen people being paid to stay at home with little else to do What's the risk that we see significantly lower profit in the second half if we see a reduction in furlough payments? And we've obviously had the, the hot weather and people want to be buying barbecues and kitting out the garden and such like. And of course, you say that there's rooms that need to be um, decorated still. Maybe attention will shift to the to the inside. But what's the risk that people think, well, you know, hang on, I could be losing my job here. I'm not going to splash out on paint. For for example, what sort of risk there to uh, to Kingfisher shares? I think there's always a risk, Jonathan. But um, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, for everyone that is locked down at home, um, the biggest single asset they have is the house or the flat or wherever they live, um, almost certainly. So so a lot of stuff might go by the wayside. Um, but but if there is if they're at home, there's nothing else to do, and they have an opportunity to. Finish that extra bedroom, or maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, um, sort the garden out, put some fencing up, or, or what have you. I think I think they'll do it, and I think um, uh, certainly, certainly looking at 
the anecdotal evidence within the industry, the construction industry, house building, DIY thus far, I think it would take a, a huge downturn, a huge downturn to, to, to trigger a fall in sales like that. But um, of course, that's always possible. But let's not forget, I mean, I mentioned this previously, um, that although we're seeing uh, the entertainment industry, um, pubs, clubs, uh, restaurants in dire straits, um, there are other industries that are benefiting. And uh, obviously, this is this is one area that's benefiting. But we also have, for example, the the, uh, the mining industry that's um, going through a sea change at the moment. And, uh, you know, a lot of lots of youngsters um, coming out of university are going in to work for um, small uh, small mining companies and and the larger companies are, are employing simply because there is there is uh, this um, huge increase in the value of um, of commodities like precious metals like uh, iron ore for instance or copper um, all of these uh, all of these assets are rising in value um, and certainly um, China is showing showing uh, clear signs of recovery and of course China really is the the mass consumer of of these commodities so provided um that continues to um to to to, to evolve then um i think we'll see a migration uh, obviously there'll be a lot of retraining required in, in many cases but i think we'll see a migration from uh, people who would might otherwise have gone into the leisure industry looking at looking at uh, alternative career opportunities so um unless there is a hugely severe downturn um i think uh I think there will be continued support from the government. Of course, it won't do the country any good. It will mean higher taxes in the longer term. But um, I do think we'll get through this. Indeed. So I think this is going to be a subject that we do discuss again. And of course, going to be a very interesting one to see how that pans out and the impact on the UK economy and, of course, markets. Now, you did touch on the mining sector there, Alan. And there's two more stocks that we're going to discuss Today, so let's start off with the mining company, which is ECI Minerals. We have discussed in some detail before, but there's been a update from them. What's happened there? Okay, yeah. So I'll just touch on this because, as you said, we did speak about them a few weeks ago. Um, just, uh, just for a brief summary, ECR Minerals um, have two flagship assets in the Victoria region in Australia, Southern Australia, uh, the Bayliston and Creswick Gold projects. Um, they've also, over the past year, um, uh, raised uh, raised money. They raised six hundred thousand at one point three p, and also a further four hundred thousand from uh, warrants. So the company is in a very strong position financially. It's funded through to the end of next year, and it also has purchased its own drilling rig. Um, so what the company are currently doing, they. Um, they have been in discussions with uh, potential joint venture uh, or farming partners for to develop both Creswick and Bayliston um, uh, and companies. Uh, we know that, that uh, Newmont, of course, has a license application adjacent to the Bayliston area, and there are discussions with that company and others. Um, but um, what ECR has done, it's uh, having these discussions it has had offers. Um, it doesn't value. Um, it hasn't valued the offers um, it's received to date. So it's going ahead and drilling at Bayliston, and um, we're going to get news from that uh, in the next few weeks. Um, this is massively exciting. Um, comparisons, of course, have been made with Greatland Gold, which uh, which uh, uh, had a farm in agreement with uh, Newcrest Mining. And of course, the, the valuation of that company jumped from, I think, uh, seven or eight million up to 65, 65 million. So uh, ECR is currently valued at about 11 to 12 million. So uh, we could we could quite, quite quite possibly see a similar scenario here. But drilling is underway at the moment. Um, and also, uh, if you've been watching the news, of course, the lockdown in Victoria has lifted. The cases there have, have, um, have almost uh, dried up, thankfully. Um, and on the back of that, um, part of the reason in the delay in progressing the the um, the, the site visits was the that uh, the teams that were flying in were, were flying in from other regions in Australia, and had they arrived, it would have involved a fourteen day lockdown. So they didn't come in for that reason. 
Um, now, of course, with the restrictions being lifted, we expect the teams to arrive. So um, I think we're going to see a, a fair bit of news from ECR in the next few weeks. And uh, we're certainly at a very exciting juncture. Indeed. And, that, and obviously, it has been one that we've been covering in some detail. So um, we will be updating listeners uh, again, because a very interesting story there un- unravelling for ECR. So moving on now, Alan. Now, this, this is one that I wouldn't class as a COVID stock, such as, as Kingfisher. And it, it's not one that's, that's, you know, as high level tech as, the, you know, the likes of sort of Google and, and Amazon to really sort of fall into that stay at home bracket. But it has had um, a very interesting set of results out recently, and it does benefit from increased uh, usership of digital devices. And this is Myriad Advertising. Yeah, They've been, over the last sort of week or so um, since they've reported, been going one direction. Uh, they've rallied from about 20p, now trading at 35p. What's been the highlights there, Alan? What's driven these shares higher? Well, Myriad's a really exciting technology company, and indeed we worked with them earlier this year. And um, so we we, uh, we had, or we, uh, we, we, we had a very detailed understanding of the recovery, or still have a very detailed understanding of the company and its offering. But as you say, I mean, the share price performance, a year low, 5.5p, and here we are just off, Year highs at well, in fact, we are at year highs of, of, of 35, 35, 30, 36 pence, but with good reason. Um, so, what Myriad do the, the um, uh, traditional TV advertising, of course, um, it's well known that uh, um, the value that is being delivered from TV advertising uh, for, uh, is, is perceived as falling uh, for the simple reason, of course, that everyone now records the programs and. Uh, when they get to the commercial breaks, they just wind through and, and get to the get to the next bit of the program. Um, so, of course, ads aren't seen. You don't have the impact that you would have had, say, with an old flat, uh, TV ad, ad like Flash for Cleaner um, uh, all those years ago. Um, nonetheless, um, Myriad have developed um, a product placement um, uh, technology where um, – it, it, within the program, they can insert um, uh, products uh, uh, such, such as um, uh, uh, T-Mobile, um, Corona Beer, um, all of these products that um, that uh, that uh, would want to reach this market and you know see a, a boost in sales as a result of advertising um, can be placed within the programming um, and also with with streaming programs like Netflix. Um, the products can be altered to target a, a specific audience, which, of course, is, is fantastic. But if you go to the Myriad website, um, it's, it's, it, they actually, there's a very good demonstration showreel video that uh, takes you through that process so, so you can understand it. And what I like about Myriad is that, unlike many technology companies, they've been very cautious in forecasting their revenues and in each case, they've either hit or slightly exceeded. So, so you can. So, so if they say they're going to hit numbers, you know, historically that they, they've done that. Um, but of course, with lockdown again, they were hit at the start of the year. You know, that's when the shares really touched their their sort of uh, their, their year low around sort of five and a half p. And um, but since since then, the the company reported in May that it had had the busiest April since. Uh, since um, its operations in China began. And, of course, in China, it has a big contract with Tencent uh, and um, kicked off a massive campaign with clients, including Enterprise WeChat, China Mobile, TAL Education and Saint Laurent and uh, and other brands. Um, And uh, this has been a big revenue driver for for the company. in May, it also announced that uh, the company had appointed a new chief technology officer and uh, a new commercial team in the US, and also announced a pilot scheme with Channel 4 here in the UK. So again, you know, uh, very, very strong developments commercially from the company. But I think what's really lifted the share price, um, well, two factors. Um, in September, the company announced that it uh, it would be dual listing um on the OTC uh, uh, on the OTC exchange in the US, which would give, of course, 
US technology investors um, access to the stock in this key market. And I think, you know, any company that ha- is either technology based or pharma based really needs to consider a dual listing because, in my opinion, it is the dual list that has propelled the share price to the highs that we now see. Um, backed, of course, by, as I said earlier, the revenues that the company announced. Um, and on September t- the 10th, um, interim revenues, half-year revenues of 897000 up 109% despite COVID. Um, the company has $14.5 million cash in the bank, so it's, it's well-funded for the foreseeable future. Um, and also, very importantly, um, again, careful cash management. It reduced uh, its cash consumption over the period to $4.5 million from $6 million previously. Um, operating losses were reduced to uh, just under five million from seven half million previously, and the loss per share was two p as opposed to seven p previously. And Stefan Beringer, the CEO, said that um, the company was uh, doing well, expected to continue its expansion during the second half, and continued to trade in line with expectation, which is quite typical of Stefan's very um, very cautious, very uh, very pragmatic approach to to managing expectations of investors and also uh, forecasting for the company. So yeah, I think Mira has got a really exciting future. And I think um, at this level, it's fairly valued. Uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's got a very bright future. And I think uh, once the, once the uh, technology is adopted, they're first to market with this technology. Once it's adopted across the channels, then uh, we can have a company that's worth many, many multiples of, of where it is now. Indeed. Of course, in these companies, there's lots of companies coming into the um, ad tech space. Um, not all of them will win, but it certainly looks like Myriad is starting to gain that traction there. And, and certainly in a period which has been very tough for advertising, a lot of the big players are pulling budgets, reducing budgets. For them to actually have quite a significant increase in revenue is positive, And that has been reflected in the share price, of course. So. Indeed. Just looking at it, uh, Alan, a, b- a bit of insight on the, on the cash burn. Obviously, burning about four and a half million in, in the uh, in the first half. They've got a balance there uh, of around um, fourteen million. Is there any indication of when we could start to see some cash flow coming from the revenue that could support um, costs going forward? Because obviously, that that will keep them going for the next eighteen months. Uh, at the at the current rate, I mean, are we expecting to see a tick up in revenues that will reduce that cash burn going forward? Very much so. Well, I think uh, as I indicated, I mean, cash burn uh, also cash consumption has reduced, so they've got um, they have that fourteen half million uh, at the bank, um, and as the as the revenues increase, and also with the US listing too, um, they've they they now have a new chief technology officer and a new, US, a new commercial team in the US. So they'll be going all out to integrate uh, the Myriad platform into the key US uh, TV channels. So I think that I think that period of evolution is now. That's underway. So I think um, uh, what, when it will happen, um, how quickly it's adopted, I don't know. But, but, but I think what we're seeing is that they've been tested by all the major brands, including... Pepsi, Condé Nast, Taste Made, uh, France TV, New York Times. Um, so, so, so they've been tested by the major brands, and um, it, the the technology has been adopted uh, certainly by Tencent in China as 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 a core revenue generator for for the channel. So, um, I I think they've got certainly a better than average chance of um, of. Uh, of seeing this away probably by by the middle of next summer. Fantastic, fantastic, Alan. Thank you. So, um, just as a recap, the um, stocks covered today were ECR Minerals, um, ticker ECR, and um, Kingfisher KGF, and just then was Myriad Advertising with a ticker of MIRI. Alan, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Jonathan. So just um, just before we finish up here, um, the UK Investor Magazine conducted an analyst interview earlier this week discussing the um, cinema market and in particular 
um, Cineworld. And then Cineworld are going to be reporting tomorrow. So we're going to leave you with a section of that interview. It's very interesting insight before Cineworld's um, report tomorrow, interim results. But of course, further insight into an industry that's been very heavily hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you very much. Today, we'll be discussing the upcoming Cineworld results with Senior Sector Analyst, Harry Barnick. Good afternoon, Harry. Afternoon. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you keeping? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Not too bad, Jeremy. So as far as the situation as it stands is concerned, what kind of capacity utilisation is currently being achieved by Cineworld? Uh, Very interesting that you asked, Jamie. Um, I think... You know, what we're really seeing here is um, a key concern around capacity utilisation is the, the restrictions that have been put in place. Um, so, so perhaps if we take a look at that first, because it's useful just to understand what sort of capacity capping we've seen uh, as this is being applied on a regional basis in the US, for instance, but also on a national basis in the UK. Uh, so capacity has been capped in most major markets due to covid And uh, a kind of broad rule of thumb would be that if um, theatres are applying a two metre rule, um, we would see a 30% capacity level as the maximum amount of capacity that can be achieved in any one cinema. Uh, If the theatre is applying a one meter sort of one meter plus rule you know as we're hearing from the UK government then uh, the potential capacity um, capping is basically 50%. So what that means is that in the current climate, um, based on which country you're looking at, most of the major operators have seen their capacity cap between 25 and 50%. Um, that might seem like a lot to begin with, um, but what we're really hearing is that actually in the UK market, for instance, um, the capacity levels on an average weekly basis pre-COVID were actually sort of mid to high teens. Uh, with the majority of capacity coming in at the weekend. So Friday and Saturday nights and Sunday, for instance, you'd get roughly 65 to 70% of your capacity coming through, and then the additional 30 to 35% coming through midweek. Um, so, you know, what we're hearing is actually, it won't actually be a huge challenge, the, the capacity concerns, uh, just because uh, of the historic kind of average capacity levels already fit within the capacity constraints that have been put in place on a regional and national level. Um, Now, when it comes to attendance, um, in terms of how much of the capacity the theatres are actually able to sell, uh, you kind of have two camps here. Um, And we can sort of talk about that in a bit more depth, perhaps when we try to understand what that might mean for the results. But, you know, what we're hearing is that basically you've got two camps. On the one side, you have... um, one camp that thinks that people are going to flock back to cinemas uh, just like they have restaurants, pubs, and bars. And then another camp saying that it's the last thing that they want to be doing. Um, There has been some polling that's taken place. uh, And if we take a look at some polls in the U S for instance, uh, that's crucial for uh, Cineworld, what we've heard is that um, roughly a third of customers are virtually willing uh, immediately to go back. And then you have sort of 40 to 45% of uh, customers who are maybe a little bit anxious and may, may wait a week or two just to, um, to see how exhibitors are um, observing social distancing, for instance, and, and what sanitation, me- uh, sanitation measures are in place. And then 25% who feel much more vulnerable and aren't interested in returning uh, for weeks or even months. Um, so sort of a complex picture. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the capacity constraints, which don't seem to be limiting the overall capacity. As as I said, the average capacity is normally lower than that. Uh, but then the attendance levels are also going to be quite interesting to to kind of observe over the next six months or so. Okay. And uh, something that everyone will want to know or hear you talk about is, what do you think investors can expect from the September results? And how might the Cineworld results differ from those posted by their competitors? Sure. Um I mean, you know, Ed, the future results, anyone's best guess. So, you know, we do our best not to speculate at Third Bridge. What we do is we kind of focus on the operational elements uh, that might be impacting a certain company like Cineworld. And we try to stay clear of any sort of forms of speculation around forward looking 
financials. Um, but what we can say is obviously um, what we're hearing is that in the UK market, we've seen a, a major decline year on year in box office revenues. Um, you know, in, in terms of the total market, that could be a reduction of anywhere between 45 to 50% uh, for the UK. Um, so, you know, if we saw 170 odd million visits last year, that could come down to, you know, let's say 80 to 100 million. Um, and it, interestingly, within the September results, it will be so crucial to look out for um, what we hear around the shift towards PVOD. Uh, so obviously Mulan, uh, the Disney film, moved direct to PVOD uh, and wasn't shown in theatres. Uh, and we've also heard about the deal between AMC and Universal uh, and what that means for the shortening of the theatrical window. So it will be really interesting in these results to see what Cineworld says around that theatrical window. Um, you know, what we're hearing is that it's unlikely that they'll be willing to shorten the window, uh, that both Cineworld and Cinemark, the sort of two and three largest operators in the US, will be holding firm uh, and won't be joining AMC uh, in any sort of uh, theatrical window shortening. Uh, with Universal. Okay. I mean, again, it's, it's going to be, um, people want to know about the financial situation. Uh, would you be able to comment at all on um, what you think might happen with dividend payments, given that they were deferred in April? Do you, would you be willing yeah. to even speculate on what they might say in the next statement about these? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the last thing we know about dividends, and this from management at Cineworld, is that they've been suspended for the year. Uh, and that was from April onwards. Um, what we're hearing, and I, and I think it's more important, is that just given the high debt load at Cineworld, but also AMC, the next six months will really be critical uh, to ensure survival, really. Fantastic. And um, looking ahead, do you think the previously delayed releases might spare a recovery? Or do you think a slowdown in film production might hamper the Cineworld outlook? Very interesting, uh, Jamie. I think, you know, if we just try to understand, firstly, you know, we've seen a lot of postponements. Um, you know, Wonder Woman, the, the most recent Wonder Woman franchise was, I think, postponed just last week. Uh, and that's the sixth time that it's been postponed this year alone. Uh, it's now been pushed back to a later release date. Um, obviously, James Bond uh, was pushed back from earlier this year to November. Uh, Top Gun has now also been pushed back to 2021. Um, you know, there are some family films in the 2020 slate, like Soul, for instance, which is due uh, end of November uh, to hit the Christmas attendance levels. Um, but the pushback in that content will really um, make 2020 a challenge. And, and what we're hearing is that, as I said, in the UK, the slate could be down anywhere between 40 to 45 percent. Uh, and that's simply just due to the fact that with the content not being available, you won't have the same attendance levels. Um, so as you probably saw, the um, exhibitor opening schedule was almost linked to the release date of Tenet. Uh, so that was pushed back a number of times and the exhibitors followed suit in terms of pushing back the opening schedule because uh, what we heard is that there's simply no real uh, reason to open your cinema unless you have compelling content that brings, um, brings viewers back into the cinema. Uh, so, you know, the delayed releases will um, potentially drive attendance, but a lot of those releases are being pushed back into 2021. And so the outlook for 2020 uh, is relatively bleak as a result. Uh, James Bond will be absolutely critical uh, for the UK market. You know, that's what we're hearing. It will be really, really critical. It needs to go ahead as planned. And if it's a success, it could definitely provide some strong momentum heading into 2021. Okay. And um, sort of to, to that end, what sort of stuff do you know about the plans of studios such as Disney? And uh, based on what you know, how might these plans affect any world revenues over the next six to 12 months? Um, so I guess the, the kind of the key things to consider here are obviously, you know, Disney have their own um, production pipeline. Um, one of the key uh, revenue drivers for Disney in 2021 uh, was going to be the release of Avatar. Um, unfortunately, that film has also been postponed uh, due to the COVID pandemic. So um, 
that's been pushed back now until 2022. So that will have, um, you know, what we're hearing is that will have pretty big implications for the exhibitors themselves, uh, because obviously they won't be able to show that uh, film until a year later than initially planned. Um, so that's one factor. The other factor with regards to Disney um, is also, of course, the fact that they've set up Disney Plus. Um, and what we've seen with Disney Plus is uh, films like Mulan, uh, which would have showed directly in the theatres, uh, was initially postponed. And then actually the decision was made to move it directly onto PVOD and to, to show it directly on Disney Plus before showing it in theatres. Um, and, and that's actually posing what could potentially be quite a, um, I guess, structural challenge to operators like Cineworld, uh, because, you know, on the one hand, we have films like Mulan moving to PVOD. And then on the other hand, what we're seeing is pressure from Universal to shorten the theatrical window to allow films to move into POD, PVOD um, faster than they have done historically. Um, we know from the experts that we're speaking to that Disney wants to respect the theatrical window. Uh, and as a result, you know, they won't necessarily be trying to dictate Cineworld revenue in a way that perhaps Universal is with AMC. Um, but at the same time, the content that they produce and where it's shown will obviously have a key impact on uh, the future top line of Cineworld, both in the US and in the UK. And you mentioned earlier about cinema attendance, of course, being crucial to any form of recovery that Cineworld and other cinemas will see. Um, what kind of geographical disparity do you think there might be in terms of the recovery in the uh, box office? Sure. Um, it's interesting. I don't, we're not hearing necessarily of any key regional differences um, in terms of upcoming performance. Um, what we have obviously heard is that in Europe, uh, cinemas opened much earlier than they did. Uh, so in continental Europe, this is, so excluding the UK, cinema, um, cinemas opened much earlier in uh, Germany, for instance, than they did in the UK. Uh, so just by proxy of the fact that they were open longer uh, and they were able to show some old films and drive attendance through those old films, um, you know, what we're hearing is that obviously we can expect uh, a faster or, or more promising results from those regions over the UK. Uh, the US has, of course, been in a similar situation to the UK and is still struggling today with the global pandemic. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, the difference in the UK and the US is sort of very minimal is what we're hearing. Uh, and, um, you know, both of those regions are key to Cineworld, the US more so than the UK. Um, but there haven't really been any key insights that we can draw out in terms of differences by region. Um, but what we can tell you is that the key regional difference will be uh, this deal that AMC has struck with Universal. Uh, this is primarily taking place in the US currently. Uh, we don't know what it means for the global market, um, but we do know that it has some pretty big implications on both the top line and bottom line profiles uh, of these exhibitors. Uh, and just given that that's being driven out of the US, it will be really interesting to see how that unfolds on a regional basis. Okay, in, in, in a sort of worst-case scenario, with all these challenges Cineworld are facing, do you think they'd ever consider selling some of their cinemas in order to generate cash? And uh, in such a case, how much attention do you think investors would pay to the Cineworld portfolio? Uh, it's interesting that you'd say that. I think there's probably a couple of things to consider here. Uh, so what we're hearing, firstly, is that Cineworld uh, in the US, uh, Regal, as it's known, uh, on a national level, has already been fairly aggressive with its sale and lease back agreements. Uh, so in order to improve the liquidity uh, and to raise cash historically, uh, Regal has already been participating in those sale and lease back agreements. And so what we're hearing basically is that as a result, there really isn't much scope left in the US for um, there's not really much scope left for any sort of sale and lease back agreements. Um, the majority of the work has been done. Uh, similarly, in the UK, um, it appears that, you know, what we're hearing from the experts we speak to is that the mostly, so the majority of the sites are also leasehold. And so in terms of the opportunities to generate cash by selling cinemas for alternative uses, such as residential properties, it's probably um, relatively limited. 
in terms of the attention that you would need to be paying uh, to the Cineworld portfolio, something that's quite interesting to note, and this is something that we're hearing across the board uh, from a number of the uh, industry experts that we work with, is that um, we could actually see a permanent reduction in the size of the estates across operators. Uh, so what does this really mean for somebody like Cineworld? Uh, well, for Cineworld, what we're hearing is that we could see up to a 10 to 15% reduction in the estate size uh, once um, the pandemic is over and we're sort of operating in a post-COVID environment. Um, and what does that mean for the, the smaller operators? Well, it's quite interesting because um, the, the growth of the smaller operators has been quite significant over the last few years. And um, what we've heard in, in previous work that we've done is that in the UK market, for instance, independent operators could occupy anyway, sort of roughly around 10% of the total market. Um, the growth in that market now is expected to slow. And we may even see uh, smaller operators not being able to manage the capacity constraints that we mentioned earlier. Uh, and also they may not be able to manage just the significant cash flow um, constraints that that creates. And so it could lead to, on the one hand, a drop off in the, in the size of the estate that the large operators, but also could lead to a drop off in the number of small independent operators. Um, and on that point around a drop off in the number of small independent operators, it's quite interesting to note that what we're hearing is that uh, we could actually see from an M&A perspective, um, you know, potentially we could see streaming sites like Netflix or Amazon uh, being interested in picking up uh, some of these independent operators. Um, there's been a lot of talk around M&A in the space uh, primarily driven by the uh, recent um, Paramount consent decrees news around it being abolished and therefore studios being able to purchase exhibitors. Um, you know, I, I think at least what we're hearing from the experts we work with is that it's unlikely that studios will be interested in uh, purchasing exhibitors. Uh, Disney and Sony, for instance, weren't even a part of the Paramount consent decrees. So had they wanted to purchase exhibitors in the past, they would have been able to. Um, but more interesting is whether or not we might see uh, some um, streaming sites like Netflix and Amazon actually participating in bolt-on acquisitions and picking up smaller national independent operators. Uh, and it might sort of seem a bit questionable to begin with why that might be. Uh, and what we're hearing is that actually it's an opportunity for um, Netflix or Amazon to uh, diversify their distribution streams. Um, but it's also a real opportunity to try and attract um, the highest profile filmmakers who aren't just interested in releasing films directly on their streaming sites, but are also interested in um, releasing their films in theaters. And what Netflix or Amazon could do by making these small vault on acquisitions, they could uh, bring these top filmmakers uh, onto their platforms, release those films in the select theaters as well as uh, in streaming sites. And as a result, uh, in a world where content is king, uh, they can try and bring those best, um, those best filmmakers onto their platform uh, to drive uh, eyeballs, essentially. Okay. Um, if you just had a bullet point, what would be your sort of three main challenges that Cineworld and other cinemas to even perhaps are gonna face in the next sort of year or so? And what are sort of three main things that are still going for them? Yeah, I think in terms of the challenges, um, we really want to be focusing on the attendance levels. Uh, and this is linked directly to the content that's being pushed out by studios. So, um, you know, what are attendance levels going to be? And are they going to be restricted by capacity constraints? You know, as we get more confidence in reopening cinemas, will we have more confidence in terms of allowing more people into the theatres and therefore relaxing some of those uh, rules around capacity constraints. So um, that will be one thing, you know, the attendance levels and, and what that means actually in terms of filling the cinemas. Uh, I think another key thing that you want to be looking at, uh, and it's something that, that definitely our experts are highlighting, is just around the cash concerns for these businesses. Um, both Cineworld and AMC have large debt piles 
um, and cash is going to be essential for the next six months. Um, within that, you have a, a pretty large fixed cost, which is the rent payments. So it's going to be really interesting to understand um, how rate, rent payments unfold uh, over the next six months, 12 months, what sort of concessions landlords make. Uh, what we're hearing is that any concessions that are made will likely be uh, in the form of a deferral. So let's say uh, Cineworld or AMC are able to achieve a six month rent holiday uh, due to uh, a drop off in attendance or due to the fact that they were simply closed. Uh, that six months will be added on to the end of the lease and therefore paid back in the long term. Uh, so that will be another key thing just around the cash uh, that these companies have. Uh, and something to consider within that is just also the potential inflation that we might see in the cost line around having to uh, improve the um, the cleaning of these sites on a daily basis to ensure that there's no spreading of COVID. What sort of implication that has on the cost line, um, and and does that further limit the the liquidity of these individual companies? And then finally, uh, probably the biggest thing that we'll be wanting to follow is just the. It's really just the development around the shortening of the theatrical window. Um, as I said, you know, we've already seen AMC take a deal with Universal where they shorten the theatrical window from roughly 75 to 90 days down to 17. Um, it's a drastic reduction. Uh, what we heard is that perhaps 35 to 40 days reduction uh, would have been uh, suitable. So 35 to 40 day theatrical window would have been suitable. Uh, 17 days is very difficult to make work. And it has a lot of exhibitors in the space feeling quite anxious about what this really means for any potential shift in consumer behavior. So the third point there is just really around, you know, keeping track of what is happening, um, what is happening uh, with regards to the, uh, the shortening of that theatrical window. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and then I think you wanted to know as well if there were sort of three things going for the theaters in the future as well. Well, anything good. If there's, if there aren't three, I'll take what we, we will take what we can get. <laughs> sure. I mean, obviously we've got the, um, we've got the James Bond release uh, and um, there are some pretty interesting films in the pipeline. So, uh, you know, what we're hearing is that 2020 was going to be a relatively muted year anyway, due to the content that was available. Um, a lot of that, a lot of the best content has now been pushed into 2021 um, so, you know, all things going well, uh, we're hearing that James Bond could be a real success, it could drive a lot of revenue in particular in the UK, and that could then provide a lot of momentum going into 2021, uh, where we should hopefully see uh, a number of uh, significant releases uh, that will hopefully take place in theatres and won't be moved to, uh, to PBOD. Fantastic. So a lot of challenges ahead, but not all hope is lost. Harry, thank Indeed. you very much for speaking to us. And yes, just a reminder for our listeners, our podcast is available on the UK Investor Magazine website, Amazon Alexa, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast, and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.